Well, it's wonderful to be here to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a little different, a little different of a service, as you can already see. In years past, we would do the Living Last Supper. We've done a Seder meal many years ago, which is really retelling of what's going on here. But I thought it was important this year, as we come to a Monday Thursday, to understand the significance of what happened there in the upper room at the Last Supper with the disciples before Jesus went to the cross. You know, we take part in communion every month. Many of us, it's just a tradition. We just go and we take communion. We have the bread and the wine and we leave and we don't think much about it. My hope is that as we come to the table tonight, that we understand the significance of what happened in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. You have to understand the Jewish calendar is filled full of festivals. It is full of festivals. In fact, I just read a story of a woman who uh, went through all the festivals and wrote a book because there's so many festivals that the Jewish people go through throughout the year. The calendar is full of them. You've probably heard of many of them. There's the Feast of Pentecost or Weeks, and that's the, that's the celebration of harvest time. It happens at Pentecost every year around the same time. There's the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, and it commemorates Israel's wandering through the wilderness and God's provision for them, food and water. You'll hear the festival of Purim, that the Jewish people celebrate. It's the celebration of the protection of the slaughter of the Jewish people in Persia through Queen Esther. You'll hear the, the feast of dedication or Hanukkah in December. And it's really a celebration of Judas Maccabees over the, the Syrian people in 164 B.C. But you'll also hear of the feast of the Passover. That's what was happening the night that Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples. The feast of the Passover. Now, what was the feast of the Passover? The Passover, if you remember, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. In the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, they were enslaved in Egypt. And if you remember the story, Moses was, was sent, saw a burning bush, and God said, go deliver my people. And he goes to Pharaoh. Okay, if you remember your Sunday school days, goes to Pharaoh, and Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, yes. And then he goes to do it, and then Pharaoh says, no. And then there's a plague. So the same thing happens again. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, okay. And then no, and then another plague. There are ten plagues, if you remember the plagues. Flies and frogs and locusts and the death of cattle. But the last plague was the biggest one. The last plague was the tenth plague. Moses went and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, okay. And then he said, no. And what had happened was, God already told Moses that what would happen is all the firstborn children, all the firstborn would die that night. And so in order to prevent that, he told the Israelites to put blood on the doorposts. Blood on the doorpost so that when the angel of death would come, it would what? Pass over that house. And so it passed over that house. All the children died the next morning and Pharaoh let them go. So it's the feast of Passover. That's what's happening that night in the upper room. 
The Feast of Passover. It's closely associated, you have to understand, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, unleavened bread is important because when God told the Israelites to go, they had to leave in a hurry. And so they didn't have time to let their bread rise with leaven. And so they had to take unleavened bread because it was quicker. It wouldn't take time to rise. So they would take that bread and go. So it's closely associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's actually, they combine the two to make an eight-day celebration. And there's all kinds of festivities, all kinds of things that happen during that time. In fact, on the news this morning, I don't know, maybe you saw it, but uh, they had a a picture because it's going on right now. It's towards the end of the festival in Israel, in Jerusalem right now. And this morning they showed a picture of hundreds of thousands of men and women at the wailing wall there in Jerusalem with their heads covered, reciting a prayer. Because it was the end of the festival. And what would happen during the time that they would celebrate the festival throughout the Old Testament, there was the Day of Atonement. And what would happen is, once a year, people would bring animals to be slaughtered as a payment for their sins. And what would happen is they would bring these animals, the animals were slaughtered, and then they would sprinkle the blood on the Holy of Holies. That was the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. Now you've got to understand, there was typically over 250,000 animals slaughtered at that time. And they had rules that no more than 20, but no less than 10, could eat of that one animal. So if you do the math, That's about 2 million people coming for this festival, this Day of Atonement. And the law required that all the animals had to be slaughtered within a two-hour period. So what would happen is all the blood would pour over the altar, and it would just flood right down in the Kidron Valley. And the blood would have a stream of just blood for days. And it was a reminder of the atonement. So this is a tradition that the disciples now were coming to the upper room. And if you look at Mark uh, 14, verse 12, it says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, first day, when it was necessary, customary sacrifice, the Passover lamb, the disciples, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So the disciples knew that this was coming. This was a tradition that dated back 1,400, 1,500 years at the time. It was a big deal. You don't miss the Passover. There were traditions that you have. There were certain things, preparations that you had to make in order to have the Passover. You you didn't go a different way. You didn't get different food. You didn't have different preparations. You didn't have different stuff at the table. It was a tradition. It, it's hard to compare that tradition, but it would be like our Thanksgiving, where what do you have at Thanksgiving? You have, you have turkey. It would be like somebody saying, asking, hey, where do you want to have Thanksgiving? What do you want to do? And someone saying, well, why don't you go ahead and get some tacos and some Kung Pao chicken, and then we'll, we'll eat that, and then we'll watch the rugby game, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll shoot off fireworks. You just don't do that. You have turkey, you watch the football games, don't you? 
The Passover was the same deal. You didn't, you didn't alter it. You didn't go a different way. You had a certain amount of food there. You had a certain order of service. Because this dated back. This was a reminder of the Passover. It was a celebration. The blood that was shed. So everything about this meal had, some, uh, had symbolism. To the preparation, to the timing, to even how they ate. If you look at verse 18 of Mark chapter 14, it says, While they were reclining... While they were reclining at the table. You see, they didn't even sit normally. Because only free people had the luxury to recline. And so what would happen is, they would actually recline on their left side to show the significance that they were free people. That's the significance. From the stuff at the table, to the preparation, to even how they ate. And then you have some major food elements. Right here at the table. And we're going to go through some of those major elements so you understand what was happening. It was the same setup that Jesus had in the upper room with his disciples. Some of the major food elements and traditions. Now forgive me on some of the pronunciations. But the first part is the Kadesh. There was a benediction. And what would happen is the table would be set. And what they would do is they would hold up the first cup and they would pour the first cup of wine. Always four cups at the table. This cup is something else that we'll refer to in a moment. Four cups of wine, always at the table. And what they would do at the benedictions, they would say the Kadesh, and it was a, uh, it was a, it was a kind of a blessing to start the meal. And then there was a ceremonial washing called the Urkats, and they would wash a certain way. A certain way, as in a prescribed manner, before the meal. And the next part was the appetizer, or the, the karpas. What the karpas was, it was usually like a parsley or a, or a celery. It looked like this. It looked like this. And it was like a bitter herb. And what they would do is they would take a cup of salt water. And they would dip the karpas in the salt water and let it drip out. Let it drip out. And those drippings had significance as well because it reminded them of the tears, the tears of sorrow as they moved from slavery to freedom. The carpos. And then always at the table was the matzah or the unleavened bread. And they would have the matzah like this. They would have them stacked three high. Again, the unleavened bread is important because when they left, they had to leave in haste. They had to leave in haste, and they couldn't take leavened bread. They didn't have time for the unle- for it to make it leaven, to make it rise. So they always had unleavened bread. In fact, many customs require that during this feast, during this whole time, they weren't have to have any leavened bread at all. And what they would do, they would do a ceremony called the akats. Yakats, which was breaking the, the matzah. And what they would do is they would take specifically the middle piece, the middle piece, and they would break it. They would break it. And they would leave one piece on the plate. One piece on the plate. And that was important because it reminded them of the bread of poverty. The other bigger piece, what they would do is they would, they would take it and they would cover it up and hide it. They would cover it up and hide it. And it would be saved for later at the appetizer, or excuse me, at the uh, dessert. 
And then at some point during the meal, there would be the Magid or the reciting of the Haggadah. What would happen is a child at some point during the meal would say out loud, why is this night different than all the other nights? Why the bitter herbs? Why the fruit? Why are we dipping? Why are we relaxing as we are kings? And then the head of the household or somebody in charge would read the Haggadah, which was the reciting of Deuteronomy. The reciting of Deuteronomy and their exodus during for freedom. And then the head at some point would say, would say, after he would read Deuteronomy 6, he would say, The bread of affliction of our fathers ate at the land of Egypt. Let anyone who is hungry come eat. Let anyone who is needy come and eat of this Passover meal. And then they would begin. And there will be other things on the plates as well. As mentioned, there's the, uh, the ma'or or chazaret, the bitter herbs. This was usually like uh, a horseradish or romaine lettuce that looked like this. And that bitter herb reminded them of the bitterness of slavery. And then they have this. This is called the charoset. And it's a mixture of apples and nuts. It's a sweet mixture. And what they would do is they would often dip this into the charo set. And this charo set was important because it's a mash of nuts and apples. And it reminded them of the mortar that they would use for the bricks when they were in slavery in Egypt. Because they had to make bricks. At one point, Pharaoh even required them to make their own bricks to make it even harder for them. And then there's this. This is... The baitza, it's an egg. And what this egg was, it was first hard-boiled and then roasted. And it was served as a reminder of the, of, the, of the festival of sacrifice during the temple. Now it's a symbol of mourning because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and they could no longer do those sacrifices. And then we have this, the zaora. This is the meat of the lamb that was sacrificed. Have that on the table as well. And after dinner, what they would do is they would take the afikoman, which is the dessert, which is really the piece that they broke off. They would hide it and the kids would go find it. And this piece also has significance too, because when they broke it, it symbolized the fact that the, that the Lord split the Red Sea so that they could go on dry land and escape Pharaoh. And everyone else. So that's what the afikoman is. During the meal, they would have a second cup of wine. The second cup of wine was poured. Right before eating the bitter herbs. Then after the afikoman, what they would do is they would have a, a special blessing called the barak. A blessing over the meal. And it was at that time that they took the third cup. And they poured the third cup of wine. They'd say a blessing. And then they'd sing. Sing songs of praises called the Hallel. Songs of praise. And at the end of, after they sang the songs, they would, they would say the Naritza, or acceptance. And what they would say is, they would say, next time in Jerusalem, or next year in Jerusalem. And they would cite this long prayer. And what they would do is they would drink, they would pour the fourth cup of wine... They would drink it, and then they would leave. The key here are the four cups of wine. As you see there, four cups poured. Always four, 
No less, no more. The four cups symbolized something very important for the Jewish people. Now, there was a lot of different theories of what that symbolized. Some thought it was the symbol of the freedom of the four exiles, uh, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and then the present-day exile which they were in. Some of them think there's four cups because in Pharaoh's dream there were four cups of wine. Some of them think that it was the four uh, evil decrees, slavery, the the murder of the, the Hebrew boys by the Pharaoh, the drowning of all the Hebrew boys in the river. And then slavery. But most likely, the four cups come from Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. It says, I will bring you out under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out under the yoke of the Egyptians. Go back to verse 6. Four things. I will bring you out from under the yoke. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. That's the four cups of wine. So you say, well, there's the meal. That's wonderful, Jared. Next time we have a Passover feast, we'll be sure to set the the table just like that. The key to all this is you understand that Jesus broke the tradition right here this night. You see, some of the meal was supposed to be eaten in silence, and Jesus broke that tradition as well. He broke that tradition. It was supposed to be eaten in silence right after the bitter herbs. And I kind of wonder if this is where it came about. Mark 14, verse 22, it says, While they were eating, he took the cup. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and he had given thanks, and he broke it, and, and gave it to his disciples, take, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So at one point during the meal, Jesus took the bread, and he broke it. Again, different from the tradition. He broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And now he's saying, take, eat, this is my body. It's it's not about the unleavened bread. Now it's about me. This is my body, which is broken for you. Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking? Can you imagine knowing that you've done this meal every year of your life in a certain way, in a certain order, in a certain fashion? You think it's going to be the same way. You don't break the bread like that. You don't talk during a certain part of the meal. You don't say that. It was all about the exodus. Now Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's all about me. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. I I wish I was there to see their faces. It was probably just shock. Like, you can't do that. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's a new tradition. Something new. He's saying, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, many would say that that's transubstantiation, where it actually physically, literally turns into the body and blood of Jesus. We don't believe that here at Christ Church, because how could it turn into his body if he hasn't died yet? How could it turn into his blood if his blood hasn't shed yet? So he took the bread and he breaks it. says, this is my body. Then there was a third cup of wine. He said, he took the cup. He gave it to them. He said, drink from this. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. 
he said to them. The disciples must have been shocked. Because here's a new covenant. A brand new covenant. Jesus is saying, listen, this is a new covenant that I'm starting. That no longer sacrifices need to be made. I am making the once and for all sacrifice for all time. He's breaking the tradition. He's breaking from the tradition of what they would normally do. And now he's saying, this blood is now my blood. This wine is now me. It's a covenant. A covenant is a bond. It's an unbreakable bond. Which is great, isn't it? It's a forever promise, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's not dependent on the disciples. It wasn't dependent on their actions. And that's important to know. Because you got to know, as soon as this happens, as soon as they were done with the meal, they go out. And in fact, the very next verse, it's not up here, but it says, you will, some of you will fall away. What happens is they go out, and Jesus is convicted, and he's, he's there, and all the disciples just scatter. And if you remember Peter, Peter's there, and he's watching Jesus go to, uh, go to trial, and somebody says, hey, Peter, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you the guy? And he goes, I know nothing. I know, I know not the man. Isn't it wonderful that the covenant that he said had nothing to do with the disciples? Because if it had anything to do with the disciples, the covenant would have been broken pretty quickly, wouldn't it? It has everything to do with his love for us. Not our actions in response. What a great God. He's saying, listen, no matter how bad you screw this up, my bond is unbreakable. No matter how bad things, you, decisions that you made in life, whether you messed up in your marriage, or you're into addictions, or you've, you've messed up, you've walked away from me, you're into all kinds of different things, you have worries or fears or anxieties, and you've doubted me, you've, you've, you've not claimed me, you've, you've been a fearful, you have all these worries and concerns, no matter how bad you screw it up, has nothing to do with you, has everything to do with my covenant to you, my unbreakable bond, my covenant. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful that we can come no matter how bad we messed up? You know, Christianity is really about new beginnings, isn't it? It's about fresh starts. Some of you need a fresh start. I know that I met with somebody a while back, a gentleman who really made some bad decisions in his marriage. In his personal life, and he said, you know, Jared, I desperately want to come to church, but I just can't because it's Communion Sunday. And I said, why, why couldn't you? He goes, I would feel so guilty. I feel so guilty coming because it's Communion Sunday. I said, you're looking at that all wrong. You're looking about how your response is, who you are. What the Communion Sunday is what Jesus does for us. It's about fresh starts. That's why every Sunday we have a time of confession. We, did it, we just did it here already. We always have a time of confession. Why? Because we want to come in a worthy manner. We want to confess our sins. And he's faithful, he's just, he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I said to that man, I said, listen, you better be there on Sunday or on Monday I'm going to come to your house. Because communion is a place for you. It's about fresh starts. has nothing to do with our reaction. has everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. 
Some of us need fresh starts in here. Some of us may know who Jesus is, but don't understand that he died for us. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That he went to the cross and died for us so they didn't have to do a sacrifice every year. That he was the once and forever sacrificial lamb. That's why this is a, a total change for the mind of the disciples. Total change forever. Jesus was that once and forever sacrifice. Communion is a place for fresh starts. With communion, we remember that Jesus died. That it's a whole new covenant. That we don't need to do sacrificial lambs anymore. That our sins, as they separate us from God, don't require an animal sacrifice. Don't require 250,000 animals to be sacrificed. It's a once in a lifetime sacrifice. All we need to do is believe in it. Believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he came as the one and only sacrifice. Confess our sins to him, ask him to forgive us, and then know that we're clean. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful to be able to celebrate that every communion Sunday? Fresh starts. But what's great is not only did Christ make the Passover about himself, there's a very interesting verse at the end of this Verse. Many theologians have looked at it from many different angles. It's verse 25. Verse 25. It says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. It would appear, after Jesus took that third cup, the fourth cup was the end of the meal. That Jesus said, I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And while Mark doesn't say, and many theologians would agree, and I would agree too, that it would appear that Jesus never drank that last cup of wine. Because the Passover wasn't over. Because there's, Jesus is still coming back. It's an unfinished thing. Jesus is still going to come back for us, those that know and love him, and take us home. That's why 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, Whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't that great? That every time we do this, every time we have communion, every time we break bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. So that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Isn't it wonderful that every time we do this, we know that, hey, it's not over. That Jesus is coming back for us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to know that the life that we live now, the pain that we have now, the frustrations that we have now, the sickness we have now, it's just temporary. That forever, those that know and love the Lord will be with them in heaven when he died because he's going to come back and prepare a place for us. That's what he's doing. It's so wonderful to know that. My hope, my prayer that if... If you never know who the Lord is or what this whole Holy Week is about, know that he came once and for all for you. He died for you. His blood was shed for you once and for all because he's perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice. And we simply need to admit that, Lord, we, we, we have sin in our own life that we couldn't do it on our own. 
We believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the perfect sacrifice. We confess our sins to him and we ask him to wipe us clean. And then we're excited to know that we get to be with him when we die. Isn't it great that every time we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. We're going to take a moment now and prepare our hearts for communion. And I hope today, tonight, as we come and take communion, that we reflect on the new covenant, the significance of this meal. The significance of this meal. You know, one of the things it says in John 14, he says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. Jesus didn't say that he would never drink it again. He just said, I won't drink it until anew, until I'm anew in my kingdom. That's what Jesus says. It's not that he's going to leave it there forever. He says, I won't drink it, the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. I can't wait for that. One theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, said, isn't the irony, the difference of the Passover celebration, the cup that usually brought the Passover to the end would now be drunk at the beginning of time of endless fellowship in God's kingdom. How powerful is that? How powerful it is to know that Jesus died for us, he rose again, he's in heaven, and he's come back, kind of come back and take us home to be with him. And I, I can't wait for the day. Because I kind of wonder if we're all going to sit down at the great feast in heaven. Jesus is there. And he's going to look at us and go, now where did we leave off? Oh yeah fourth cup he's going to look at all of us and say welcome home welcome home I told you I was going to come back for you oh my hope my prayer for you tonight is that you know that same hope that same hope that he goes and prepares a place for us in a new kingdom he paid that ultimate sacrifice for us and that every time we take communion we remember, remember that he's going to prepare a place for us. And we get there. He's going to say, welcome home. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Lord, we thank you for what you did on the cross. Lord, we thank you for what you said at the upper room, the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a, it's a new deal. It's a, it's a whole new thing. A whole new binding to us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we no longer need to perform sacrifices of animals, that you are the ultimate sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray that you be with each and every person in this room. Maybe they've come in and knew nothing about this Last Supper, knew nothing about what happens at the cross, knew nothing about what happens on Easter Sunday, but they understand the significance of it now, that you died for us as an ultimate sacrifice for our sin. So I pray that they see you standing here today. And if that's you, church, we, we want you to celebrate communion with us. And, the only prerequisite is that you know and love the Lord as your personal Savior. That's it. 
It's not a denominational thing. It's not a Christ church thing. It's a relationship thing. So if that's you tonight, it's as simple as praying a prayer. It's not to me. It's not to the people next to you. It's to the Lord who's here alive with us today. Pray this prayer. The silence of this moment. Dear Lord Jesus, I understand I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I thank you that you came. Your body broke for me. And that your blood was poured out for me. And that you saved me. I thank you for that sacrifice. I ask that you forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Lord, and take me home someday to be in heaven with you so that you can look me in the eye and say, welcome home as well. Thank you for today. And Lord, we do thank you for what you did. Be with us now as we come to your communion table that we proclaim your death and resurrection until you come again. We thank you and we ask all this in your name.